Kia ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene. Hekona ipurangi tene e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. Today we're talking to renowned shark expert, Clinton Duffy. Hi there, my Clinton. Kia ora, Erica. Ko Clinton Duffy aho. I am a technical advisor marine species for the Department of Conservation based in Auckland. Thank you so much for talking to us. Now, Clinton, we've, we've never met in person, but I've called you a lot for expertise on various marine species because you've got years of experience in the marine environment. Clinton is the person that you go to for anything on chondrichthian fishes, so sharks, rays, chimeras, and he's got years of experience in marine ecology, habitat surveying, new species identification, and designing protected areas. He's even got his own Wikipedia page, which I'm not sure if he keeps updated, but clearly a fan does. Uh, He's been all around Aotearoa doing this work, right up to the Kermadex, right down to Rakiura. Now he's in beautiful Tamaki Makoto, where he's calling us from. It's great to have you here. Kia ora, Erica. So, Clinton, tell me up front, what what is your job? Well, um, my job is primarily um, providing advice on um, protected fishes and turtles. Occasionally I get to do some research, some hands-on research on sharks and rays. I bet that's the coolest job at any party that you're at. Um, how did you get to where you are? I, I grew up in, uh, in Masterton in, in the, in the Wairapa, and we spent our Christmas holidays and virtually every school holidays um, at the beach. And when I was a very small boy, I, I, I saw people catching sharks off the beach, and I'd go up there and say, oh, that's a shark, and then I'd be told, oh, no, we don't get sharks in New Zealand. That's a lemon fish. Um, and then one day I was out in, in the boat with my father. We had a big bronze whaler swim past the boat and I was pretty much hooked on them ever since. So Whoa. I grew, grew up watching Jacques Cousteau and Ron and Valerie Taylor and Ben yes. Croft TV shows and, yeah, waiting for the day that I could finally see a live one myself. Oh, what a first experience with the bronze whaler. So, so tell me about New Zealand. Do, do we have sharks here? Oh, we, sh- we sh- certainly do, and you know, some of them are actually called lemonfish, but um, we have about 113 sharks and rays, um, depending on you know what the taxonomists say at any given point. Um, can't always make up our minds what to call them. And, um, and about half of those, around you know, 66 um, species are sharks. And, and do we see them often? Oh, uh, it depends where you are, but yes, they're um, more commonly seen uh, during spring and, and summer when, they, when some species move close to shore. Various species of sharks can be seen around the New Zealand coastline at almost any time of the year. Okay, and, and are they threatened? Some are. New Zealand's shark populations are managed, you know, probably better than many in the world. Um, it was a result of a recent IUCN red list assessment that we did, and um, we came out looking reasonably good. But we've got a couple that are possibly near threatened, and um, and, a, and a couple, the great white shark and the basking shark, they actually fall into threatened categories. Both of those, the the great white shark in particular falls into endangered because it's got a naturally very small population size. I see. So, so I mean, now that we're there, can we please talk about the magnificent, mysterious, 
misunderstood, maybe? Um, Carcharodon carcarius? Right, yes. Well, I mean, an impressive fish by any stretch. You know, you see hard-bitten fishermen that, that don't get excited about anything getting pretty excited when they have a great white shark swim past the boat, even a small one. We estimate there's about 750 adults in the New Zealand population, and that's shared between New Zealand and the east coast of Australia. The west, western um, Australian population is different and um, quite isolated from the New Zealand east coast population. They are born at around about a metre to a metre and a half long. They weigh about 20 kilos at birth. And the females can get up to at least seven metres long and well over two and a half tonnes um, fully growing. Amazing. And and you've been doing um, data on them since 1990. What kind of thing is that telling you? Ah, well, first thing it, it it told me was that they're found all around New Zealand. Um, it's a bit of a myth that they're the most common in the southern South Island and at Stewart Island, places like that. You can counter great white sharks almost anywhere um, within the New Zealand New Zealand waters. You tend to get smaller ones around the upper North Island and bigger ones further south, but you know you can get, occasionally get tiny tiny great white sharks, you know, mm. turning up in the subantarctics as well as the big really big ones. Cool, and and you get to. I say get to dissect one or two a year, but do you often see them, do you get out in the field and see them alive? I worked on them for 10 years in the field and we got out, generally got out in February, March, um, visited places like the Stewart Island and the Chatham Islands, um, the east coast off Gisborne, Manukau, Kaipara Harbours, places like that. And we saw them fairly regularly. I've probably seen several hundred of them now. Um, and, and there are so many photo credits online, um, Clinton Duffy, and it's this close-up of a great white. How do you get those photos? Is that a GoPro in the water or are you in there? We started out working out of the cages at Chatham Islands. Um, it was really quite impractical. We learned fairly soon that we could recognise all the individuals, um, every individual that came to the to the boat by their colour patterns. You know, we initially thought we'd film them from the cages and that'd be a great way to do it, but it wasn't because you can't see them coming up behind, you know, behind the cage or whatnot. So we, we swapped the pole cameras from the boat. So we'd stand on the duckboard at the back of the boat. We'd have a person on each side of the boat um, telling us where the sharks were. And that way we could pretty much photo identify any shark that came to the boat that day, provided we could get them close enough. And that, really? that's often the trick. Wow. Identify any as in the ones that you tagged or which species it was? Oh, no. Identify which individual great white shark it was. So Ella or Miranda or Fred or, you know. Fred. Just, Fred the yeah. great white shark. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> well, um, there's, too, there's too many sharks called Bruce. You know? <laughs> um, and, and they've been protected since 2007. Have you seen a noticeable difference uh, since since then, since you've been doing that research? Uh, not really. Um, we did a genetic mark recapture population estimate with uh, scientists from CSIRO back in uh, 2017, 2018, and that suggested the population's been pretty much stable uh, for the previous decade, maybe in slight decline. So, yeah, we don't actually have any evidence of uh, of an increase in the number of sharks. And the numbers that we saw at Stewart Island were fairly consistent most years. Okay. And you also, you're doing basking shark research. Well, yes. Um, the basking sharks was in the, in the, in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, sort of the Holy Grail at the moment, really. Um, New Zealand was the was the southern hemisphere hotspot for basking sharks 
and they're a real mystery. We know virtually nothing about them. And the best way to study them would be to um, satellite tag them. But of course, as soon as we got funding to do that, they disappeared. <laughs> so they it's used really to inconsiderate. Ag- very, very. <laughs> they used to aggregate in places like um, the Pegasus Bay and the the South Canterbury Bight. Um, they were seen off Northern Stewart Island and in. Otago fairly regularly up until about the mid 2000s and then they just suddenly disappeared Um, and we don't really know why that is Uh, they have a reputation for doing this in the northern hemisphere so for example around the British Isles they um, disappeared from many of their hot spots for 20-30 years and then suddenly just reappeared so we don't really know um, why that happens. Satellite tagging in the northern hemisphere has shown that they're capable of crossing the equator, and they do that by swimming really deep below the warm tropical water and popping up right. on the other side. Uh, so it's possible the population shifts around the globe, but we just don't know. Uh, do you have any guesses as to what it is? Is it the temperature of the water or anything, or nothing's quite? We don't have any guesses, really. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all speculation. Um Uh, we know that climate change could affect uh, the distribution of plankton, which they feed on. Mm -hmm. And um, so they feed on tiny crustaceans in the plankton and they'll be very sensitive to changes in the distribution of currents and water temperatures and things like that. So that could be affecting them. Um, They may have just sort of moved moved off somewhere else. We know they Mm -hmm. also occur in Chile. They are occasionally seen in um, South Australia. But it's possible they've gone to the northern hemisphere. It's possible they've shifted to the North Pacific or maybe the Atlantic. Oh, wow. And and do they have natural predators? Do, do basking sharks and all sharks, actually, do they have natural predators? Well, the only evidence we have of predation, or natural predation on basking sharks is sort of um, they uh, occasionally turn up in the stomach contents of of great white sharks, I should oh. say, bit, bits of them turn up. Obviously, it's a bit of a big, too big a meal for a great white <laughs> eagle <laughs> thing. Um, killer whales are probably predators of them, and that yeah. goes for great white sharks as well. Killer whales actually feed on quite a number of different species of shark. So, a great white's not an apex predator. They're close to the top of the food chain, um, okay. but um, but yeah, I think killer whales really sit at the t- very top. Uh, and, and let's talk about the unnatural predators that sharks have. Oh, the unnatural predators that sharks have. Uh, well, the biggest one, obviously, are human beings. Um, it's been estimated that more than 100 million sharks are caught annually in uh, commercial and sort of artisanal fisheries globally. Um, that that figures are quite out of date these days, and no one's come up with a better one yet. But um, it's certainly in the the, ten, the tens of millions of sharks that get caught by humans every year. And and wherever you look, humans are the the, the major pressure on sharks. Um, and that it's it's not just fishing. It's in the tr- in many countries. It's also habitat loss in the tropics. There are quite a number of fr- uh, fresh water sharks in rays. Right, and, and in New Zealand, has the Maui and Hector Threat Management Plan helped, or do you think it will help that expansion? Although those plans aren't really intended, for, you know, to protect sharks, the um, restrictions on set netting, in particular, and also um, potentially trawling in some of them, you know, within the, some of the areas are close to trawling within two nautical miles of the coast. All of those sorts of measures certainly do help sharks, and great whites and basking sharks would be the two of the species that would probably benefit the most. 
can we talk about shark reproduction? I understand it's extremely varied and sometimes not so kind. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sharks have, you know, have experimented with virtually every form of reproduction that uh, is known to the vertebrate animals. One of the simplest forms of uh, shark reproduction involves egg laying. And that's a relatively small number of sharks lay eggs. Um, most of the skates lay eggs, um, but the stingrays and majority of sharks give birth to live young. And, you know, uh, it's not just one form of of um, reproduction there. Um, it starts off with things like dogfishes, which retain the eggs inside the female, and the eggs actually hatch inside the female, and then the young live off the yolk sac to uh, otherwise where they they hatch out inside the uterus. The mother produces, I think, a material called uterine milk, which the embryo drinks. And then in extreme cases, um, the females produce eggs, which the, um, the, the developing embryos eat throughout um, their development. Uh, and in the mo at the very, very far end, end of that extreme, uh, the two largest embryos in the uterus eat all the siblings. So that in those species, uh, and it's a fairly small number, it's really mainly the, the grey nurse shark and the deep water nurse shark, female only gives birth to a maximum of two young at a time because sharks, female sharks have two uteri, so one on each side of the body. And then, um, it, then you move up, up the ladder to things like the, um, the whaler sharks, they ha have a placenta, so the developing embryo has a placenta just like a mammalian one. It's mm. derived from different tissues, um, but it's very, very similar uh, to a mammalian placenta. Amazing. And and is it true that in great whites they need to swim away from the mother as soon as they come out? So um, it's thought in most species of sharks the females stop um, feeding while they're giving birth um, so they don't inadvertently eat their young females tend to return to the same to the area that they were born in to give birth and then they and then they leave those areas as well so um, those areas may become sort of you know habitually used uh, nursery areas some sharks actually breed over a very large area but many use uh, these habitual nursery areas that they return to um, every two or three years to give birth and then and then they leave them and, and that provides an extra layer of protection for the developing young so you don't have large adult sharks mooching around that may eat you. Always a good thing to have when you're being born. Um, yeah. so, so, so you're the go-to when we see sharks. Your phone is one of the first to ring. I have to ask, do you have a shark phone? No. No, oh. I just have a standard dock phone. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you get loads of questions over the summer. Uh, the main one people always ask is, are there more sharks than usual this season? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, well, globally, it's pretty much true to say that there are less sharks than usual every year because um, sharks are so heavily fished and, and they're in danger. And many species are endangered throughout the world. In New Zealand, most of our shark fisheries seem to be doing fairly well, um, and the populations are considered to be stable. Very few are considered to be increasing. So um, pretty much every year we see the same number of sharks in shore that we saw the previous year. The exception can be in exceptionally warm years when we get, may get um, a a few extra tropical visitors. Some of the, um, the rarer tropical vagrant species like oceanic white tips and tiger sharks and dusky sharks and things like that. We may see one or two of those, but overall numbers are generally pretty stable between years. You can get some 
parts of the population shifting into areas where there's a bit more food than usual. So you can get these local shifts in abundance, but overall, pretty much the same number of sharks every year. Okay, so you see Fred going past, Fred the Great White Shark. Oh, you wouldn't miss him. He's pretty big. Cool. Um, It sounds like there are so many to choose from. Do Do you have a best day at work ever that you keep going back to? Oh, I think my best day in the office was um, last summer, actually north of Hauturu Little Barrier. And uh, it was late late in the afternoon, almost all the other boats on the water had left, the sea had become glassy calm, and we were out looking for manta rays. And um, not many people know that we have manta rays in New Zealand, but oceanic manta rays visit here every year and probably resident for a large part of the year. And... Um, We'd seen a few that day, um, and then just before we left, we noticed a little bit of a disturbance on the surface and some birds circling, and we went over, and a very large manta ray sort of broke the surface right in front of the boat. And then while we just sat there in the boat with the motor off, we looked around, there were manta rays breaking the surface everywhere as far as we could see. Um, and it's one of those moments you've got to sort of you know, blink your eyes and slap yourself and go, am I actually in New Zealand? <laughs> oh, that is it so was, cool. Cause it was pretty cool, yeah. Wow, because it hasn't been uh, known for a long time, has it, about manta rays aggregating that? Ah, uh, well, um, uh, mana whenua have known about manta rays for a long, long time. And, um, and one of the names for Aotearoa actually means manta ray. So they've clearly been... Um, coming to New Zealand for thousands, probably millions of years. In fact, they're they're probably better considered to be resident in New Zealand and and just visit other places. Okay. And that's one of the questions we're trying to get at um, with the manta rays. We're trying to figure out, um, you know, is it a resident New Zealand population? It seems to be, but it's starting to look now. We've heard that the first manta rays have been sighted. um, again um, this this summer and uh, we'll be working with Conservation International and the Manta, New Zealand Manta Trust to try and get more photo identifications of the animals and possibly get a few tags out on them as well. Awesome. So, yeah, your work stories don't often involve the printer breaking, I can imagine, but um, you must have some pretty unexpected what others would say are odd days at work. Can you... Can you think of any that stand out there i once had a stingray try to have a jacuzzi on top of my head um when i was scuba diving at the poor nights of course you did Uh, all the lights went out it got very dark and when i looked up there was a big stingray just sitting draped pretty much draped over the bubbles from my um the first first stage of my scuba so um, it was having a lovely time i actually had to look up and then poke it in the belly Mm. to get it to to move off a bit yeah Wow, and um, and I feel like there's a black groper story. But oh yes, um, that was at the Kermadex. Um, uh, back in I think it was 2004. I was I was up there on my first trip to the Kermadex and um, swimming along, enjoying the enjoying the grouper, and we had a, two um, a couple of small Galapagos sharks following us around, and we came around the corner, and here's this big black um, spotted black groper. Um, and I, I say black because they can be very pale as well and they can change their colour mm-hmm. in an instant. This guy was particularly black. He was all black and looking fairly grumpy on it. And then he ca- oh, I was all black. I had a black wetsuit, black tank and black fins. And um, 
he he came straight up to me and right up to my face and started flaring out his pectoral fins and opening his mouth and raising his dorsal fin and I thought oh he's and being friendly and then he would zip behind me and then pop back around in front of me and zip behind me and pop back front and then in the end he really flared out his mouth and gill covers and I thought ah I know what you're doing you're threatening me <laughs> you're telling oh. me to get out of your territory and um, I I took the hint and and, and moved on. But it wasn't until after the dive that I was what I, I was told that he was actually zipping behind me and biting my fins, <gasps> trying, to, trying to trying to move me off in a bit more a hurry. I should uh-huh. have gone white and been you know play, you know and submissive, but I couldn't change colour like he did. No, gotta gotta go fashion conscious in the water like that. I didn't know they could change colour at will. Is it? Can they just go any colour? They change from this jet black. Um, coloration to this black and white coloration where you've got they've got very prominent um, oblique white lines along the side of the body and at, at times they can go almost pure white wow. and, and it happens in the blink of an eye as you look at them so much camouflage in, in the water because great whites are double camouflage as well aren't they that, that yeah. double tell me about that most sharks and most pelagic fish are countershaded, so they're dark on the top and pale on the belly, and that's a form of camouflage where the pale belly reflects about the same amount of light as the upper part of the body. So um, the animals only have to be a short distance away from you, and um, they just blend, um, merge into the background and become incredibly difficult to see. Amazing. Uh, there, there are so many variables in conservation work. Have you had times in the field where everything's gone wrong oh yeah sharks <laughs> as soon as you don't want to do stu- what you want <laughs> no as soon as you de- as soon as you decide you want to study study them they disappear and become incredibly difficult to find all of a sudden the basking sharks are the worst example of that, of that for me i mean the entire population disappeared in the mid-2000s as soon as we got some funding to work on them. Mm-hmm. Um, bit embarrassing to lose a 12, 12.2-metre long fish. Um, but, um, but yes, I mean, one year we went to the Chatham Islands, the year after our, a very successful first field season at the Chatham Islands, uh, where we had sharks lining up at the boat to be tagged and photo ID'd. Uh, we went back there the next year and we were, spent three weeks there and we saw only saw two or three sharks and they wouldn't come anywhere near the boat. Really? Uh, we had a National Geographic film crew there absolutely you know, going spare and looking at us as, as if we didn't know what we were talking about. Oh, you know? no. And they're just not reliable. They're just not reliable. And we found out in the end that um, people had been catching them in the lead up to um, to their protection taking effect and they'd become incredibly wary of boats. Um and, you know, the, the few sharks that we saw um, approached the boats underwater and then they would roll over on their side and look at the boat and go, no, we're not sticking around here. Oh, so clever. Such clever techniques. So if people aren't dicks, then we might get to see more marine species. Uh, well, during lockdown, um, people have got lots and lots of stories of, of all sorts of marine life, including sharks and rays, coming much closer to the beaches and hanging out hanging out more in shallow water. Also aware of some research that was done at at University of Auckland where they found that eagle rays, for example, were much more abundant um, or tended to be more abundant in the quieter harbours than the harbours that had boat ramps and marinas and were regularly used by 
powered vessels. And it's just simply the, the, the level of disturbance, you know, drives quite a lot of these species away, away from the shore. Mm. It seems so obvious when you say it like that. Um, ha- has your attitude to, ch- uh, to sharks changed since you began working with them or have you just loved them forever? Yeah, I pretty much loved them forever, um, as, as, as long as I can think. I certainly had um, a real, um, uh, a, a real uh, healthy respect for them from an early age because all you ever came across were shark attack stories. Mm. And so um, I started spearfishing when I was about 12 years old, and um, the first thing I wanted to do was learn more about great white sharks to avoid becoming um, a statistic. And, um, you know, I found that the more you find out about the sharks, the less of a you know um, monster, the less um, you know mystifying they are. They're mm. absolutely beautiful animals. Um, great, great to see underwater. And I go out of my way these days to find sharks underwater. Not necessarily great whites. I still have a very, very healthy respect for them. But you know, I I know that you know not every great white is is going to bite you on sight. Um, mm. One of the things we noticed working on them was they're a very circumspect animal. The large great whites are pretty cautious creatures uh, around boats, and um, you know they've all got yeah, they've all got their seem to have an individual um, personality, if you like. Um, they all behave slightly differently, um, and some of them you can even re- recognise by their behaviours. Um, so um, they're much more complex animals than most people give them credit for. Yeah, and there's you know, and that's been borne out by research on brain size and behaviour and things like that. Wow. And you're right that the word shark has such negative connotations, unfortunately. What what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about sharks? Oh, that they all look like a great white. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's there's um, well over 400 species of sharks globally, and, and you know, they range in size from things that are fully grown at about 10 or 12 centimetres long to mm. whale sharks that are, you know, get to 18 metres long. Mm. Um, and, and the next one is that um, any shark you see is going to bite you. Um, most sharks have no interest in human beings. Most sharks are actually more scared of you than you are of them. Um, as a general rule of thumb, if you don't know what sort of shark you're looking at, you should treat any shark over 1.8 metres long as being potentially dangerous but even the only potentially dangerous just because any wild animal that size is, is a powerful animal and if you harm it or, or, or do something to it, it could potentially hurt you. Okay. And, and with the, um, the negative outlook, would you say the media don't really help? The I read something the other day that said the Taranaki terror and I oh, just thought, I- that's not fair. <laughs> I was lucky to see, lucky enough to see the Taranaki Terror. Um, Were you? Did you rename it Bruce or Fred or something? No, no, we called her Mrs. White. She was a very large, um, great white shark, probably close to six meters long. I saw a breach wow. one day um, um, off New Plymouth from about half a kilometer away, and she looked absolutely enormous. But um, yeah, it's true. Uh, the media likes to sensationalise sharks, um, and I think. Even though there's, there's, there are more many more positive stories about sharks and shark conservation in the media these days, they still inevitably play up the sensational side of, of shark behaviour and shark-human interactions. So I've heard before, Clinton, that um, sharks use their mouth as their main sensor and that their eyesight's not so good. Are they myths? Are they true? Yeah, it's complete. 
myth. Um, great, uh, well, all sharks have you know multiple, you know, very very highly attuned senses. So most sharks have very good um, vision, um, very good eyesight. They're very good at. Um, they have very good, you know, nocturnal sight. They're very good at picking out silhouettes. Um, they don't really see colour, but but they do respond to highly contrasting objects and shiny objects. Obviously, those are things that will um, attract their attention. They have a very good sense of smell, of course. They're renowned for being bloodhounds of the oceans. They, are, they have a very sensitive lateral line system. So that's a system of canals or containing little sensory cells that runs along their body and around their head um, and so they can detect um, vibrations um, in the water. Uh, they have a well-developed electrosense and so all those jelly-filled pores you can see under the snout of a shark or a ray, they're extremely sensitive electroreceptors and they're, they're sensitive enough to uh, detect the muscle um the, the nervous impulses to, to that make muscles move, so like the muscles on a fish's gills or the heart beating, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they have a number of sensory modalities that they can use when they're investigating an object. And, yeah, I mean, one step is to bite and see um, what it tastes like as well. Mm-hmm. You've talked a bit about how sharks are intelligent. Can you tell me a bit more or give me an example there? Well, some sharks uh, are very intelligent for a fish, obviously. Um, uh, others others have fairly small brains, you know, things like dogfishes and whatnot. You know, they're, they're, they're probably some very similar to a goldfish. But um, sharks at the other end of the evolutionary scale are, are fairly intelligent, and you, you see lots of examples of that um, if you spend time in the water with them. I sort of mentioned that great white sharks are pretty circumspect around boats, and they'll often check them out and spend a lot of time checking out a boat before taking a bait. Um, they also learn. Uh, most shark, most of the larger active pelagic sharks will learn very quickly. In fact, most, shark, most fish are capable of learning uh, very quickly. Um, Many of the uh, shark feeds that you see in the tropics, um, the ecotourism operations that operate shark feeds for divers uh, there, and they started off just by people noticing that every time they went out to dump the organic waste from a from a hotel or offal from a fish processing factory, the sharks were already there um, waiting for them. Um, and it's it's pretty pretty obvious that these these fish feeds or these shark feeds that um, the sharks know the time of the day and the day of the week that it's going to happen on, and they're they're already there um, waiting. And if you think about um, how a predator predator survives, if you can't find food, if you can't remember to 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 where to find food in the time of the year to find it, you're not going to be very good as a predator. So, um, yep, sharks are capable of learning, and I've even read suggestions that they're capable of social learning. So they're able to um, able to see something happen to another shark and go, mm, I'm not going to do that, or, yeah, that shark got to feed. And um, so it's obviously a, a safe place to feed. Okay. What's your favourite nature fact? Do you have one? Mm, favourite nature fact? Um, there's several species of sharks that live in northern Australia and in Indonesia that walk, and uh, they're capable of climbing out of a rock pool and walking on all th- using their fins as legs. Um, so their pectoral fins and their pelvic fins are modified so they can move them backwards and forwards like legs, and they can climb up out of a rock pool and crawl across the reef to the next rock pool. Um, they're, they're, they're called epaulette sharks, and yeah, 
beautiful little things and and it's really crazy seeing them walk around on the sea have you have you seen it I've only seen them in aquariums and, and and I've seen footage of them doing um doing that but yeah it is it is amazing to see a fish walking like that they'll wow. be on they'll be on land before we know it that's right. I wonder why they're doing it. I guess for food, to follow the food. Oh, yeah. I mean, these little little things, they live in um, tiny cracks. And, and you know, they're quite a crypt, cryptic uh, animals. They live in the narrow cracks between coral. And, um, and you know, they've got long, slender bodies and these fins adapted for walking and crawling through these narrow spaces where they wouldn't necessarily be able to swim. You know, and at low tide, uh, they can get trapped in pools, so it's oh. um, so it, it makes sense for them to be able to get out of water. They essentially get out of the pool, hold their breath, they hold a mouthful of water, and and then crawl across to the next pool. I'd love to see that. That's now a great white shark, and that is on my bucket list. You've been in conservation a long time. Can you tell me about a game changing uh, research discovery that you've been a part of? I guess the. Um, the, the biggest one I've been involved in has been the satellite tagging work that I've been involved in with Malcolm Francis from NIWA and um, Ramon Bonfil from the Wildlife Conservation Society. And we started uh, tagging uh, great white sharks in New Zealand for the first time. And we had some fairly, um, what we thought were fairly well-based expectations on what we'd see for those animals. We expected to see uh, quite a bit of movement between the aggregation sites at Stewart Island and the Chatham Islands and mainland New Zealand. Um, we expected to see sharks going to Australia, that sort of thing. Um, what we found was uh, quite different. Um, the sharks do uh, go to Australia, but often they go to the Australia via via the other islands in the Southwest Pacific, islands like Tonga, Fiji, Nui, um, New Caledonia, and they clearly knew where they were going. Um, they, they were very directed movements. They swam in straight lines and they swam at the surface for prolonged periods of time often covering more than 100 kilometres a day on these trips. So it was only taking them, you know, 22 to 25 days to do about 3,000 kilometres. And then they would spend, you know, five to six months away from New Zealand up there and then they would start returning. Some of them often came back exactly the same way they left and others would come down the east coast of Australia and then back to New Zealand that way. It's completely changed our understanding of, of how they behave in New Zealand. And the other real standout is we saw no movement, and we still have seen no movement between the Chatham Islands aggregation site and the Stewart Islands aggregation site. So there's more movement, you know, there's quite a lot of movement between the Chatham Islands and northeast North Island, um, and white sharks from the Chathams passing by there quite regularly, often a long way offshore. But, yeah, as yet we haven't seen any direct exchange between sites within New Zealand. That's a, a real mystery. Do you have uh, anything that you think of as a real proud moment of, of conservation achievement? Uh, well, I've been involved in the protection of, an, of a number of species and um, seeing manta rays protected and species like giant grouper and deep water nest shark protected, uh, they, they were really proud moments. And it's also hard to go past the work that we've done on on white sharks um, and yeah, we've they've, they've gone from being one of the probably the poorest known species of shark in New Zealand waters to one of the the, the best known species, um, uh, one of the ones we know the most about. Um, but but another moment that stands out is I was lucky enough to 
to work with Peter Last and redescribing the northern spiny dogfish, this you know innocuous little 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 fish. It was uh, thought to be uh, part of a globally distributed species, and um, we looked at it as part of the New Zealand threat classification system, and, and we dug into its taxonomy, and. Um, we're able to recognise it's a unique species. It's an endemic species. We were able to re-describe it and uh, give it back its original name, scientific name. And um, so it's a real New Zealand shark. Um, we have a number of endemic species of sharks. You know, most of the shark you get in your fish and chips is the endemic um, uh, rig or spotted spotted dogfish. But yeah, it was, always, it was really nice to give a, a fish its name back. Boycott fish and chip shops. Is that what we're supposed <laughs> Is no, that what we can do? no, I'm not. I've never boycotted fish and chips, as long as they're as, as long as they're sustainably harvested. There's there's, there's no threat to the species. <laughs> well, what do people need to know when they're out swimming this summer? Um, they should be aware that there's uh, potentially sharks um, visiting or hanging out at the beach that they're going to. It's very common to see bronze whalers, for example, and baby hammerhead sharks. Um, just off the off offshore, especially along the northeast North Island, the thing you need to bear in the back of your mind that those species present well virtually no risk to people at all. Um, that they're, they're there to feed on fish, and during the daytime they're just generally hanging out. They're not that interested in, in feeding. Bronze waders can get aggressive towards people, but that's generally um, spear fishermen. Uh, so when you've got blood and and struggling um, struggling fish in the water. That's a feeding stimulus for the for the bronze whalers, and they can behave very aggressively towards spear fishermen and try to drive them away from the fish that they've speared, so they can steal them. Um, so it's like you know, it's it's like um, a dog or something becoming very territorial mm. about its food. Um, we get the occasionally da dangerous species like great whites and tiger sharks cruising along the beaches as well. Um, so the general rule of thumb is if you don't know what you're looking at, if you don't know what species of shark it is, you just get out of the water as quickly mm. and quietly as you can. Um, you know, whereas I'd probably be running past you to get into the water and go swim with it. Um, uh, the, um, the the sensible thing is if you don't know what you're looking at, if you don't know if it's if it's a dangerous shark or a harmless species, just get out of the water. And yeah, because it's it's an environment that we need to respect them. It's their territory, really, and we're kind of yeah. Sharks do live in the ocean. Yeah, as as, as surprising as that may seem to a lot of people, that it's their Chris. home. Yeah. <laughs> And how would you like to see our relationship with sharks progress in the next, say, 10 years? Oh, well, it's really, really happy to say that since I first started st studying sharks, uh, human attitudes towards sharks have almost done a complete 360. You know, they used to be vilified and, and persecuted and just killed for being a shark. Um, I started, when I started um, sampling some fishing competitions in the in the mid-80s, around 1986, I was at a fishing competition where there were over 200 sharks killed over three days. Most of them didn't even make the minimum qualifying weight for the competition. They were just killed and pulled out as um, to be um, exhibited uh, as another dead shark, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, that has completely changed in the last 30 or 40 years, um, and you'll will not see that um, at a fishing competition anywhere in New Zealand anymore. So people's attitudes have, have, have really changed. In fact, 
a lot of people think that all species of sharks are protected and are really surprised to find out that it's only only a handful actually have full protection. I guess from now on, I really like to see people start thinking about the effects they're having on sharks' habitat, the places that the sharks live. You know, coastal development and pollution affect the coastal shark habitats, particularly the nursery areas, quite badly. And we just need to start thinking about how we're affecting the ocean as a whole. Absolutely. Clinton, thank you so much for coming on this. This was so interesting to learn about. I, I feel like we know a lot more um, about how to leave sharks be in the water. It should be really only you that goes towards them and you go and swim with them. We'll leave that to you this summer. Um, I, I love how much uh, we've learned about how intelligent they are and I feel like we're going to learn lots more in the future. Um, there's still so much to go. But, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now never miss an episode. 